Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm the campus pastor here at Fullerton. It's my privilege to bring you God's word this morning. We're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Please give your full undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say a teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, as we go into your word this morning, we thank you for Jesus, who is the source of our salvation. I pray through the ministry of your spirit, you would help us to know him better, the forgiveness that is found in him, the hope and joy that is in Christ alone. I pray this in his name. Amen. There are three main characters in this passage. There's Jesus, there's the Pharisee, and there's the woman. The Pharisee, his name is Simon. Pharisees were religious leaders at this time, and they were scrupulous in their law-keeping. The woman, if you noticed, is unnamed, and she doesn't say a single thing in this passage. The only thing we know about her is what's said about her. Simon sums her up in four words. She is a sinner. We've been going through a gospel versus religion series. And this morning, we're going to look at the difference between the way the gospel and religion views sinners, views women like her. The first thing we're going to look at, what is religion's response to sinners? We aren't given the specifics, but it's highly likely she was a prostitute, a well-known prostitute to the point that her reputation preceded her wherever she went. Simon knew she is a woman of the city. She is a sinner. 
And if sinner doesn't sound like a bad word, I, I think we use that word a lot, it can be further translated as detestable, especially wicked, or stained with sin. Religion responds to people like her, and we see this in Simon's response. People like that cannot be saved. Verse 39, Simon says, if Jesus knew who this woman was, if he was really a prophet, he wouldn't let her touch him. The religious at this time believed that these people like this woman were unacceptable that nobody wanted to be near them, let alone touch them. And if they believed that, then they definitely believed that God, holy God, would want nothing to do with them as well. People like that have no chance of being saved and being near to God. And I think that's the obvious example of religion in this passage. But there is actually another statement of religion in this text that is a little more subtle. Religion also says this, people like me can't be saved. Given the religious climate of this time and the religious leaders of this time like the Pharisees, I can totally see how this woman prior to meeting Jesus would believe people like me cannot be saved. And so what I'm getting at is this. In this passage, the Pharisee and the woman, they appear to be polar opposites. One says people like that can't be saved. The other says people like me can't be saved. But they're actually a lot more similar than you realize. They are actually both rooted in religion. One says this, they haven't done enough good things compared to me. The other says, I've done too many bad things compared to them. Both statements are rooted in religion, not the gospel. How can we tell? They both use the word done. They both use the word done. Religion, as we are defining it, is based on your works. And what you do determines your acceptance whether or not you'll be loved by God or forgiven by God, whether or not you will go to heaven. Religion relies on your doing. And not only is it works-based, but it's also relativistic. It's not just how much am I doing, but it's how much more or less am I doing than others. I know we use the word self-righteous a lot when we speak about Pharisees. But this woman was also self-righteous. If self-righteous means relying on our own works for our own acceptance, then yes, this Pharisee is self-righteous because he, he believes his works were enough. But this woman is also self-righteous because she is also relying on her works. She just doesn't feel like it is enough. But it's still reliance on her works, which is not enough, but it's still a form of self-righteousness. Both, both base their relationship on God upon their works. It's just two sides of the same coin, and that coin is called religion. In churches today, 
our church, still full of people who wrestle with religion, who lean towards one side of the coin or the other, even true gospel-believing Christians drift towards religion one way or another. And in this morning, I pray and I hope that this is a good reminder for us to recenter our lives on the gospel. And it's quite possible that there are some of you here this morning who have yet to believe in Jesus and place your faith in him. I hope and I pray that you will see how works-based religion, relying on yourself, what you do and don't do, will ultimately disappoint you and does not give you any hope, but only Christ fully saves and only Christ fully satisfies. But let's dig a little deeper in our hearts. How can we tell which way we are leaning? We're trying to figure out gospel versus religion. And like I just said, it's not just non-Christians who wrestle with religious tendencies. We all do. How can we tell if we lean towards Simon, the Pharisee? One pastor says this, The sins of others are always more shocking to us than our own sins. The sins of others are always more shocking to us than our own sins. And we'll have that on the slide there so you can see that and think about that. Is that you? If that is you, you're more bothered by other people's sins than your own. You're always more aware of your spouse's sin than your own, your kid's sin than your own, other people's sins in the church, other people's sins in this world. You're always more aware of everyone else's sins than your own. Then you lean towards the self-righteousness of Simon. How can we tell if we lean towards the self-righteousness of the woman? We just have to flip that statement. My sins are always more shocking to me than other people's sins. Now, that might sound like a good thing. It sounds like a humble thing. You're like, that's the gospel. Not necessarily. If you're so overcome with guilt and shame, and you believe you are beyond forgiveness, you are unlovable, unwanted, unacceptable, utterly hopeless because of what you've done, then that's actually religion as well. That your works are not enough. This morning, we're going to spend a little more time on the woman's side of that coin. I want us to flesh out her kind of self-righteousness because it's a little more subtle. And I want us to address that and see it. That self-righteousness that believes someone like me can never be saved. Someone like me can never be loved or accepted or fully forgiven. When we read this passage, not only do we get a deep sense of this woman's guilt, but I also think we get a deep sense of her shame. And you may not be able to articulate the difference between guilt and shame, but there is a difference. And religion offers no hope for the guilty. And religion offers no hope for those who wrestle with shame. Guilt It's something that can be worked off. If you commit a crime of some kind, you pay off the fines, you do your prison time, you have volunteer hours, you can work off your guilt, but shame is a little different. It's not something you can just work off. I think there's some people here who understand what I mean by that. 
You wish you could just work it off like guilt. You can't just work off shame. This morning, I want us to learn how the gospel not only speaks to our guilt, but our shame. As we see how the gospel speaks to this woman's guilt and also her crippling shame. If we go back in history, guilt and shame, where do they come from? They're both consequences of sin. When Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, yes, they experienced guilt. They were guilty. We know that. But they also experienced great shame because of their guilt. And what did they do in response? They hid from God. They try to cover up their guilt and their shame, both, in Genesis chapter 3, but in different ways because guilt and shame are different. They try to cover up their guilt by blame shifting. The serpent told me or made me. My wife told me or made me. That's how they were trying to cover up their guilt. But they also try to cover up their shame by taking fig leaves and covering their nakedness. There are two things they were attempting to cover up. Both are a result of sin. I think in church we talk a lot about guilt. But I think it's important we also talk about shame. And how the gospel applies to that as well. To flesh out the difference a little bit more between guilt and shame. Ed Welch, a Christian counselor and author. He says this. Guilt's message is I did something bad. Shame's message is I am bad. Simon doesn't say, she sinned. No, Simon says, she is a sinner. I did something bad versus I am bad. Guilt says you committed adultery. Shame says you are an adulterer. Guilt says I watched pornography. Shame says you are a pornography watcher. Shame says you are a drug addict, a gambling addict. You are a hypocrite, an abuser. You are an abuse victim. That is your identity. You didn't just fail as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as a friend. You are a failure. You haven't just done awful things. You're an awful person. So you may be guilty of those things, but shame is different because shame makes you become what you're guilty of. Ed Welch goes on and he shares this. He says, guilt lives in the courtroom. Shame lives in the community. The guilty person, what does he or she fear? They fear punishment. But the shamed person fears something different. The shamed person doesn't fear punishment. The shamed person fears people being exposed, 
people knowing about them. The guilty person fears justice. The shame person fears rejection. It's more social. It lives in the community. Shame whispers in your ear, if anyone finds out, anyone knows about what you've done, what you're like at home, what happened in your past, you got to leave. Your life is over. You need to move. You're not going to have any friends. You're not going to be accepted in this community. Shame makes it hard for the guilty to feel forgiven. Guilt makes us feel like we need to be forgiven. When, we feel, when we're guilty, we're like, I need to be forgiven. Shame makes it hard to feel forgiven. Brene Brown, she is also a Christian author and counselor. She says this, Shame tends to resist accepting forgiveness. It wants to think it needs to be earned or that it has never done quite enough. Can we get the slide up there, please? Or that the mistakes or sin or or imperfections are too pervasive for forgiveness. Therefore, I'm not worthy. Shame resists accepting forgiveness. And there are multiple reasons for shame. I want you to think about these as well. And it's not just because of the things we've done, but also because of the things done to us. And we can experience shame and the consequences of sin because people sinned against us or by associations with other people. Ed Welch, he gives some examples. He says, sexual abuse brings great shame to the victim. Now that person is not guilty. The victim is not guilty. So what they need is not forgiveness. And yet they still deal with so much shame. So what is offered for them? Unfaithfulness in marriage brings shame on the betrayed spouse. Verbally battered men and women are filled with shame. Psychiatric hospitalization brings shame. Filing for bankruptcy, losing a job, relying on others' generosity, that brings shame. If your parent or caretaker was a heavy drinker, you probably have been called horrible things. And that brings shame. If your parents were absent, they were preoccupied with their own problems, untrustworthy about their commitments, always felt inconvenienced by your presence, then you also experience shame. Shame is also a result of associations. That something shameful happened in your family, in your, in your marriage. Was there a, a divorce? Was there a public failure? Was there public immorality? Was someone imprisoned? Then you also know what shame is like. And it's not just things that you've done, but things that were done to you or associations that you have. And it was not meant to be this way. God created everything and it was good. It was because sin entered the world and broke everything. So what is the cure? Religion does not offer the solution. It says, just work harder. And maybe that'll cover it up. But let me ask you an honest question. Is working harder, trying harder, 
distancing yourself from certain people and, and family members and never talking about it, is that working? Is it healing you? Or do you still fear? What if people find out? If there is fear, then your hiding and covering up is not working. How do we determine what it is that we may struggle with and wrestle with in in terms of shame? Well, if shame wants to hide, then the question is, what are you hiding? I think we think maybe, I don't wrestle with shame. That's what other people wrestle with. But if we ask this question, what are you hiding? What are you afraid of? That if people found out about you would no longer be accepted, that they would view you differently and treat you differently. Suddenly we realize, no, I do wrestle with shame. And I'm saying, I wrestle with shame. And again, let me ask, how is that working out, the hiding? I bet it's not working very well. We need a better solution than hiding. God offered Adam and Eve a better solution. They were hiding from them. him. He, they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. He calls them out. He sacrifices an animal. He skins it and he clothes them with the skin of that animal, foreshadowing Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed and who would permanently and perfectly clothe their shame and deal with their guilt. Friends, Jesus offers the only hope for those who are guilty and stained with shame. The Pharisee in this passage, he's, he's asking himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner, and he wouldn't let her touch him. Because they're thinking, if someone were that close to God, why would they want a sinner to touch them? Why would God want to be so close to a sinner? Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. The second person of the Holy Trinity, eternal, infinite, pure, and holy, and perfect. And he is choosing to be near this woman. The religious have no solution for her. Jesus offers the solution and hope. Something unusual is happening here. There's a a gospel thing happening here. Simon's trying to figure out if Jesus is special, which is why he invites him over for dinner. He concludes that Jesus is not special, but he is so wrong. Jesus is special. Not only is he a prophet, he is the prophet. And not only does he know this woman's heart, but he knows all of our hearts. And yet he chooses to be near to us. Jesus responds very differently to this woman than Simon does. The gospel responds very differently to this woman than religion does. The gospel responds very differently to you and your guilt and your shame and your pain and your hurts very differently than religion does. 
The gospel thing that is happening here, I think, is best summed up by A.W. Tozer. He says this. Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he is the one who loves you the most. Let's look at now the gospel's response to sinners, the second point this morning. Jesus says to this woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Why does Jesus say this? Why does he tell her that she's forgiven? She already knows this. That's why she's there to thank Jesus for the forgiveness that she has already experienced. Jesus already knows this. But Jesus does this, I believe, because he is so loving. Because he knows exactly not only what the guilty people need, but what the shamed people need. I don't believe Jesus is ministering to her guilt in that instance when he says that. I believe he is ministering to her shame. Remember, shame lives in the community. Shame is multiplied in public. And here Jesus is ministering to her so powerfully by publicly affirming her forgiveness and standing before him and before God. Friends, the gospel doesn't just deal with our guilt. It attends to our shame. And Jesus wants to heal both. How is this possible? They're talking amongst themselves, who is this who forgives sins? Let's ask that question. So who is Jesus? How is it that he alone can attend to my guilt and my shame? This is how it's possible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus, who was perfect, holy, God, came down and took on flesh, fully God and fully man. And on the cross, he took all of our guilt, all of our sin, and all of our shame. There was a great exchange that took place. And what do we receive? If we repent of our sins, place our faith in Jesus, and receive salvation freely by God's grace, it's not just heaven we receive. We, we are covered now by the righteousness of Christ. Jesus didn't just die for our guilt, but also our shame. Remember, shame fears rejection and longs for acceptance. Shame longs to be loved by people, to be around people. This is why Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. He was separated from community. He was separated from people. It's also highly likely that Jesus was crucified naked. Movies will never depict this. Portraits will never depict this. Why? Because nobody wants to see that. You're not going to hang it up on your wall. You're not going to show kids those films. But the Roman Empire, they weren't going to dignify anyone by at least partially clothing them. No, crucifixion was a, was a deterrent. So that nobody would ever think about contesting the Holy Roman Empire. And Jesus endured great shame 
on the cross. He was exposed. Everyone saw him. And he couldn't hide. This is why Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's folly to the Gentiles. That it makes no sense why anyone would want to believe and follow somebody who is crucified on the cross. But we as Christians, we know, no, I will follow him. I will believe in him because that's the only way my shame and my guilt can be covered. This is so important that we understand this. Hebrews chapter 12, 2. Let me read this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What do we see here? Jesus did to shame what shame does to us. He despised it. He despises it. So you are no longer despised. You are no longer despicable. Jesus took all of that upon himself. And how did he do that? What made that possible? It says because of the joy set before him. There was great shame right in front of him, the cross. But he knew that beyond that, not he would die in shame, but he would rise in glory. Friends, The same applies to us. This is how you face your shame because of the joy that is set before you in this life. Yes, we'll experience great guilt and shame. But beyond that, because Jesus set the pattern for all believers, you too will share in that glory. And you too will rise in the righteousness of Christ. For the joy that is set before you, you too can despise your shame and turn that around. Romans 10, 11, Paul says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you believe in Jesus, you have a new identity and it's no longer your sin, what you've done or what's been done to you, who your family members are and what they have done. You are no longer stained by your sin. You're actually stained with the righteousness of Christ and that will never rub off and that will never wear off. The difference between religion and gospel is this. In religion, God treats you and views you according to what you have done. In the gospel, God treats you and views you according to what Christ has done. Can you believe that? You think I've done a lot. And a lot has been done to me. That may be true. But that's not your identity. When God views you, He views you and treats you according to the righteousness of Christ. I wish, especially those of you here who wrestle deeply with guilt and shame, I wish you could see for a split second the way God sees you. I think you would think, wait, who who is this person? I don't recognize that person. I think God would tell us, no, that's you. Beloved, cherished, adored, adopted, treasured. 
beautiful, my child. And that is what we receive in the gospel through Jesus Christ. You aren't just fully forgiven. That's what guilty people need. You are fully accepted. And that's what shamed people need to hear. Fully forgiven, fully accepted. Those who struggle with shame, what do they need? They don't need religion, they need Christ. He alone saves to the uttermost. Now, I'm not saying if you believe in Jesus, all of your shame is going to just evaporate overnight. You may not experience, actually none of us will experience that full covering until we get to heaven and know what that means. But I think we can help each other. Practically, not only do we need Christ, but we also need community. Brene Brown, she says this, the most powerful way to combat shame is to be truly known and to know others truly. As we share our shame stories of the ways that shame has threatened to silence us, and these stories are met with compassion and empathy, shame fades away. It loses the fuel of isolation and fear. I'm very thankful, at least thus far at CCSC, I get a sense that there is openness in our community that people are willing to share. And I hope we continue to grow in this area where more people who come to CCSC don't feel like, I need to wear a mask, and in order to attend this church, I need to get better at hiding and covering myself up. I hope that that is not the case. We're not trying to make experts, costume experts here at Christ Central. I hope you can find a community, your small group of friends, where your shame will melt away. It will be met with compassion and empathy so you will no longer feel that isolation. I want to close now with this. The gospel versus religion, the view of Jesus, their response to Jesus. Simon and the woman, they respond very differently to Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus saying, She loves me so much, Simon, because she knows how much she has been forgiven. He shares that, that parable. Imagine there are two people who are in debt, 50 denarii, 500 denarii. That's two months wages versus 20 months wages. And he cancels the debt of both. Who is more thankful? Simon knows the right answer. The one whose larger debt was canceled. Jesus' point here isn't that some of us have a larger debt. They just understand how great their debt was. We all have a large debt. All of our debt has been canceled. Just one sees it more than the other. Jesus says, I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. She washes my feet with her tears and wipes my feet with her hair. I came into your house, you gave me no oil for my head, but she anoints my feet with ointment. The religious respond to Jesus with apathy, little interests, no worship or adoration. The term here actually used to describe her tears is a term that's used to describe rain showers. She is showering tears on Jesus' feet. This isn't just a light whimper. 
She has been forgiven much. She loves Jesus so much. Those who are forgiven much love much. Maybe you're thinking, I didn't sin like this woman. Maybe you're thinking, I have a hard time relating to her, actually. I don't know what that's like. Do I need to sin like her in order to experience that kind of forgiveness, in order to love Jesus even more? No. Friends, we have all been forgiven much. There is no sin of ours. There is no sin of yours that doesn't deserve eternal death and damnation. There isn't a single sin of ours that felt light to Jesus when he hung on the cross. There is no sin of ours that needed a minute less than the six hours that Jesus was on the cross and God's wrath was being poured out on him. You don't need to know the woman's sin in order to be thankful to Jesus. You just need to know your own sin to know that better. John Piper says that it's perilous to not know our sin. It's perilous. He says it's so important that Christians are aware of their sin because it affects your worship and your joy and your gratitude. He urges Christians, get to know your sin. Why? And this is what he says. Why is this good? And precious about the sadness and pain and loss and self-devastation and humiliation of knowing my sin. If you try the shortcut around the pain of knowing your sin, you will not know the pleasures of those who cherish Jesus. You will barely cherish him at all. In fact, you will wonder, why do people use words like cherish for Jesus? I wonder that sometimes. Words like cherish for Jesus. I think as a preacher, I'm often so preoccupied with preaching Jesus that I forget to cherish Jesus myself. And Piper says here, know your sin. Not to deepen your guilt and shame, but to to deepen your worship and gratitude and thankfulness. We have all been forgiven much. The religious do not cherish Jesus. They don't cherish Jesus. But there's a world of a difference in in a gospel response and a religious response. Would you make every effort to cherish Christ? I don't know about you. I want to be like this woman. There are many people in the Bible I want to be like. I actually think it's this woman I want to be like the most, more than Paul, more than Peter, John, Elijah, Moses, I want to be like this woman. I want to be at Jesus' feet, raining tears of gratitude. And I see this woman and I think, she, she, she gets something that I don't get. She knows something I don't know. I want to know that. I want that joy in Christ. Yes, 
Knowing your sin better, you may feel like John Elias, who was a 19th century Welsh preacher. He says, the discoveries I'm making myself are painful. There's an ocean of sin and misery in me. Yes, you want to discover the ocean of sin and misery in you, but then you turn to Christ, and there you find an ocean of grace and mercy available for you as well that will never run dry. And then you want to lift up seas of praise and worship to Jesus. So we want to rediscover over and over again the sin in us, but then we go to Christ and then we rediscover over and over again what Christ has done for us. And you hear again his words to the woman and to you this morning. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus Thank you that he bore all our sin, guilt, and shame on the cross. God, show us how much we have been forgiven. It's so much. Because of that, Jesus, we love you much. With this song that we sing as forgiven, redeemed people, as a a, a covered church, we know it may not be comparable to this woman's offering, but God, would you be pleased by it? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.